You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents... It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Hey there. What follows is an audio version of an interview originally recorded as part of our Monster Talk Live streaming series that Karen and I hosted during 2020. As of this posting, we're not currently doing those live shows, but they are archived on YouTube. You can check the show notes for a link to this particular episode. And the live format's definitely something we're going to try to get back to in the future. These episodes do not get the normal editing treatment of a traditional monster talk, and because of the variety of issues that happen during live recordings, the audio quality may be wildly varied, and you should assume there will be some not-safe-for-work content, so I'm posting all of these as explicit just in case. Thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting Monster Talk. Your contributions at patreon.com forward slash monster talk and your positive reviews on the podcasting platforms and applications that you use to listen Help us reach new listeners and spread the important message that monsters can be a great tool to learn critical thinking. We need critical thinking now more than ever. Monster Talk is hosted by me, Blake Smith, and my co-host, Dr. Karen Stolzno. If you enjoy this show, please check out our deep catalog of fascinating interviews with experts about psychology, sociology, anthropology, folklore, religion, and more. Monster Talk. We've got Toby Ball, who is the host mm-hmm. of Strange Arrivals, a very good podcast that I highly recommend. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, welcome to the show. Thanks yeah, a lot. So I have requests for you to, to yeah. come on the show, and I think you had a lot of people getting in touch with you and saying you should be on Monster Talk. Yeah, I think we uh, 
so I'm also on another podcast called Crime Writers On that reviews uh, true crime stuff. And I think we have a fair amount of crossover between those two podcasts, is my sense. Yeah. So on Facebook, when they saw that I was doing this, a bunch of people were like, oh, you got to get on Monster Talk. You got to talk to those guys. I was like, awesome. all right. We're glad to have you. A number of people saying, oh, world's colliding. My favorite podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, Karen yeah. sent me the, the link to your podcast and I went to check it out. And I'll be honest, you know, I, I've been into UFOs, monsters, this sort of weird stuff for a long time. And I'm always a little, will I really like this? Am I going to learn anything? But I'm delighted <laughs> to say that, first of all, I love the show, incredible production values. And I just love the way you put the show together, the content. And I learn stuff. And honestly, at my age, that's very exciting. So. <laughs> nice. Yeah, the uh, the producers were awesome that I worked with at iHeart. The, the, the sound of it, I think it's really great. Yeah, can but I how... ask about that? Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Karen. Sorry. Stumbled all over each other. Okay. You go for it. Well, I was just going to say, how did the show come together? Like, I mean, it sounds like you're being produced through Grim and Mile. That's Aaron Menke. Right. Yeah, so, so, but iHeartRadio is the, the, the venue for it. Like, tell me, how did this happen? How did this happen? Okay. Well, it's, I, you know, it, I can go back quite a ways. But so I essentially, since I've been doing this uh, true crime uh, review podcast for more than five years now, uh, and I had in mind that I, I wanted to try and do something myself. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to do something about belief and skepticism. And I had at the beginning of, of, of uh, Strange Arrivals, I talk about this experience that my wife and I had with a, a couple who are friends of ours where we saw some lights over, over uh, the lake where we were having uh, dinner. And so those two things kind of together um, made me think that maybe the maybe the access to belief and, and skepticism might be UFOs. Um, and I I was working at University of New Hampshire at the time, which has the Betty and Barney Hill papers. Uh, so I just had access to all the all the stuff that they had collected during their lives about this experience, this UFO experience they had. Um, so I started making it as sort of an independent thing. Um, but then at a at a actually at a podcast conference, I uh, got hooked up with Aaron Mankey through through uh, a mutual friend. Uh, told him about what I was doing. He gave it a listen, and then uh, he he had a deal with iHeart, Grim and Mild, which is his production company. And iHeart had a deal to produce a certain number of podcasts, and I kind of became part of that slate uh, along with a couple of Aaron's and uh, one called Noble Blood. Uh, that's about sort of medieval history and, you know, royals behaving badly, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. Lots of material for that. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that was, you know, I, I, I'd had a, a much shorter podcast and then once I uh, signed on with them, it expanded quite a bit. And then I had, you know, professional producers who make it sound really good. Um, so yeah, yeah, it, it makes a difference, right? <laughs> Well, it must it's, it's some NPR sounding stuff. You got music and voice actors and all kinds of stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. So, how did you get interested in in aliens? I guess in the first place, just to start off. Oh, okay. And then we'll get more specific. Well, I mean, like I think a lot of a lot of people, like back when I was, you know, ten, eleven, twelve, 
you know, just thought it was super interesting that maybe there were, you know, aliens visiting us and, uh, and UFOs in the skies, along with a whole bunch of other things, like this monster, Bigfoot. And in the seventies was, it seems like that was kind of a peak at that time. Like you could actually go to the movies, like go to the local cinema and see like the mysterious monsters or something about area 51. And it's just, Mm -hmm. it was more, there was this like sort of, uh, popular culture thing that was going on then that my friends and I were a hundred percent into. Um, so it's always been kind of an interest. Um, and you know, it kind of, it kind of comes and goes, but it was always, even when I was working in DC and stuff, my friends and I would always, you know, rent like in search of from the local video store, if there's nothing else to do, things like that. So it's always been kind of an interest. And then again, when it was thinking about, you know, if I'm going to spend my time creating a podcast, uh, what would be sort of fun to do? You know, what would be fun to look into? And, you know, it just seemed it's it seemed both a fun thing to learn more about, a fun thing to talk about. I knew something that people, uh, my friends would be interested in listening to. Um, so that was sort of who I had in mind when I was kind of making it is like, what were my buddies like? What, what would they find interesting? Nice. For 10 year olds, 11 year olds, or 40 year olds. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Well, this case, I mean, you, you, did you already know about this case? Was it already important to you or does this, how did you come to pick the the Betty Barney Hill case? Um, Well, there's a few different things. I, I, you know, I was aware of it as I think most people who are, who are interested in UFOs know. I mean, it's sort of one of the, you know, star cases, something that people still talk about. Uh, And Betty and Barney Hill lived, you know, a dozen miles uh, from where I live. And they drove past my house on their way back from, you know, supposedly being abducted. Uh, my house wasn't built then. It was just a field. But Teleported past your house. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I had I, – I basically knew. I knew about the star map and things like that. But, of course, once you start diving into – you know, you dive into the details, you see stuff that they've written, you know, you take a look at the original documents, you know, endless numbers of interviews that they've done um, and, you know, commentary uh, by UFO researchers. And you realize that, you know, there's this there's a sort of basic, simple tale that you do know. But as you sort of drill down more, you get to see what kind of captured people's imagination at the time like where that effort kind of took people, what conclusions they drew from it. Um, and then also, you know, from my perspective, how like just like a small misunderstanding or an assumption can suddenly sort of take on a life of its own and people come to accept, you know, a, a, a broader narrative as being true uh, when in fact it, it's sort of based on very little. Yeah, it's like the – I think you do a good job of covering this in the show where some of the elements have become mythic Like to me. I mean I don't mean that in, in like the Greek sense. I mean that in the sense that they've taken on sort of a – like a, a reduced version of the steps in the story have become like this vital narrative as opposed to like the actual precision details that you sort of cover. And when you dig in, it's a lot more complicated and in my sense uh, interesting. So not to spoil it yeah. or anything, but but it sounds like you came in pretty skeptical about this, and 
or did you come to this like not really knowing where you're going to go? And as you did the research, did you organically come to these conclusions? I'm just kind of curious about your journey as a researcher. Yeah. So no, I you know I honestly came in it into it pretty skeptical. Um, okay. You know from from a fairly young age, I guess once I was, you know, when I was in that 10, 11, 12 range and I was getting interested into this stuff, uh, my, my grandparents were actually friends with a guy who was a prominent skeptic who we would see every Christmas. And, you know, so I'd be picking his brain cause he knew all this stuff about UFOs. And I wanted to find out more about him, but he kind of gave me this, you know, how do you actually think about this stuff? Uh, you know, scientifically mm-hmm. and realistically, you know, it's fun to think about, you know, UFOs, uh, you know, visiting us. But, you know, if you, you know, he was trying to sort of train me, I guess, to, to think scientifically about these things. So, you know, at the time, I'm like, eh, it's kind of a bummer. Um, but, you know, that's that's kind of it kind of stuck with me. So, uh, you know, I went in, I, I, I came into it skeptical. Uh, but I was I wanted to see what there was, because, again, some of the people I talked to at the beginning we're like, no, this is full on, you know, there's, this has been out there for 50 years and nobody's been able to prove that it didn't happen, which of course is a crazy, like, that's not really, that's not, <laughs> that's not, works, that's right? not yeah. the standard. Um, but then, well, I wonder if we could, um, we could backtrack just sure. a little bit, because I think sure. a lot of our uh, viewers and, and listeners, because this will be going into our regular podcast feed as well, okay. uh, will be familiar with this story, but some of them may not be. So I'm wondering if you could give us an overview of this Interesting story. Um, Okay, so the the quick the quick story is in September of 1961, Betty and Barney Hill, who were a mixed race couple who lived in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, um, they went on vacation. uh, They drove to Niagara Falls and then went up into Canada. And uh, so for the last night, which was going to be September 19th, they were going to spend the night in Montreal and then drive back down to Portsmouth, which at the time was probably like a six or seven hour drive. Um, and then for whatever reason, and there, there's several been thrown out there, they decided they weren't going to spend that night in Montreal, but they were going to drive, you know, through the night um, to get home. And so they crossed the border. Uh, they stopped at a place called Colebrook to have something to eat. Um, and, and, Barney, Barney, who's African-American, you know, this is 1961 in rural northern New Hampshire. So he's, you know, he's kind of on guard about, um, you know, what people's reaction to him, um, Mm -hmm. much less him with a with a a Caucasian wife. So there's already sort of this nervousness uh, that they're they're kind of feeling. So they, they leave Colebrook, which is pretty far north in the state and start driving south towards the White Mountains, um, and they see, uh, particularly Betty, the wife, sees a light in the sky, um, and it's it's brighter than she's expecting, and it seems to be sort of following them, um, and they pull over to the side of the road. Uh, they think it's moving strangely. They can't figure out exactly what it is, um, and then they, they, they stop a couple times, and then they drive through this place called Franconia Notch, which is um, it's, it's, you drive through this. I've, I've done this drive many, many times. Uh, now it's a highway. It used to be just a two-lane road. But it goes in this notch where these mountains rise steeply on either side of you. So it's, it's very confined and claustrophobic. And um, they see 
the light and then suddenly it sort of it disappears and then comes out in front of this place that, that used to be uh, a tourist area called the old man, the mountain, which is a strange sort of craggy outcropping that looked like an, like a, the profile of an old man. And then it fell to the ground in 2003 for some reason. So it's not there anymore, um, which is strange, but it's still, it's like the symbol of New Hampshire. It's on all our road signs and, and stuff yeah. like that. Um, whatever the opposite of a facelift is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Face lost. Um, so they, that, that's the first time they see it as a craft. Um, they, it disappears again. They keep driving South and then sort of this big moment happens near another sort of similar, um, tourist spot called Indian head, which is, looks a little bit less like a profile, but what, that's what they call it. And they there's a they stop at a field, and the this you know spaceship is hovering over the field, and Barney gets out of the car and he looks at it through binoculars and sees you know beings looking back at him, um, and we can talk about how he kind of describes them uh, later. Right, so, so the Indian Head and the Old Man in the Mountain are like competitive landmarks of like pareidolia. Uh, of of what paranoia? Like, like, yeah, yeah. So I mean, yeah. Like they both it's both like rocks that look like faces. They both are. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I think okay. there's the old man, and then somebody saw something that looked a little bit like what they considered like a Native American profile, and they're trying to capitalize because the old man, in the yeah. mountain, was like a huge, huge yeah. tourist destination. But the old man, in the mountain, lost the face off. Yes, exactly. <laughs> there's a lesson there somehow. Um, so. So they basically, they, you know, they panic, they jump in their car, they leave, they feel this buzzing in the back of their car. Um, and then they, they drive for some period of time, they hear another buzzing and they realize they haven't talked and they're about 30 miles down the road. Um, and they're not sure they're sort of in a foggy state. Uh, they try and find, they stop in Concord to try and find a policeman or some coffee uh, and then drive back to Portsmouth and they arrive home around five in the morning uh, and they'd expected to arrive around two in the morning. Um, and that's sort of, that's the story that they consciously remember of that night. Right. Um, and then the second part of the story is, you know, Barney was seeing a psychiatrist and he was having these nervous problems and, and got referred to go down to Boston to see this guy, Dr. Benjamin Simon, who was a very well-known um, uh, psychiatrist and used hypnotherapy working with uh, people who had uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. His shell shock is what they called it at the time, coming back from the Korean War and World War II. So they go down there and, uh, and under hypnosis, they tell this, they tell sort of mutually reinforcing stories about after, after that initial sighting at, at Indian Head, like driving away and then pulling off the main road, like driving on this back road and being stopped by these figures who are, aren't quite human. And they, they take them out of their car, like their car won't start again, take them out of their car and bring them onto a uh, a spacecraft that's that's landed in the woods, and they get brought on, and um, they're given medical experiments are performed on them. The stuff that you know now seems kind of cliched. You know, they're sticking like a needle in her abdomen, and you know they're checking. They pull out Barney's fake teeth, and are like, "What? 
what's going on? Does do her teeth come out? And uh, and Betty claims that she had carried on this conversation with one who actually spoke English. Um, and so convenient. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. It's nice when that happens. Um, if, fish. if you spoke German, it would have been nothing would have happened. Um, and they, been, yeah. she gets shown like a star map. Um, she asks him, where do you come from? And he pulls out this sort of high tech map that he shows her. And he says, you know, do you know where you are on this map? And she says, no. He says, well, then, you know, what's the point? Like, it doesn't, I could point to anything. You wouldn't know what it is and puts it away. Um, and so then they, you know, they're escorted out, they get back in their car. Um, so, so they did, they went through this hypnotherapy and that was, that was kind of what came out of it after, I think they each did six sessions. So there's this story that they, you know, supposedly repressed or was the aliens caused them to forget. They, until they had hypnotherapy or or hypnosis, they didn't have any recollections of this component of the story uh no but there i mean there's like there's sort of a complicating factor uh which i don't know if you want to get into it now or um which is that yeah yeah so so betty right after the initial thing on september 19th she had a succession of dreams like these very intense dreams about being abducted onto a spacecraft and she actually wrote them down in a uh in a document called I think it's called dreams or reality, right? And it's like a three-page typed document, and it's basically the exact story they told under hypnosis, right? So prior to them having the- right, so two two weeks after it happened, uh, she she basically written out the story that they told under hypnosis, yeah. And then two years later, they go under hypnosis, right, there you go. and they tell this reinforcing story where where Betty tells the story of her dreams. And Barney kind of tells the, you know, story about what he might have been doing while this was happening to Betty. Like his story that he tells is is much vaguer. He talks about having his eyes closed the whole time, just opening them up once, um, and spending a lot of time like praying that he's going to get out of this okay. Um, so his is kind of this vague, uh, sort of not very detailed story, whereas she is just like having conversations and they're sticking needles in her and, you know, it's this whole business. Um, so that's, that, that's the story in a nutshell, a big nutshell, yeah. not a nutshell. And, uh, and another question about the, the hypnosis, didn't they undergo that together? No, they were, they were separate. They're hypnotized separately. Um, and then they were also, um, uh, the, this guy, Dr. Simon, he would, he would have them forget what they, what they recalled during hypnosis so that when they went home, they couldn't talk about it to each other. So they would tell him these things and then not remember explaining it to him. And then at the end of this, this series of sessions, he did play the whole thing to them. And that's when they kind of, that's when they had their sort of aha moment, I guess, where it's like, Oh my God, we were kidnapped. Um, And which they 100%, you know, bought. Like they, it, there wasn't a situation up oh, there. They are. Um, yeah, cool. Okay. Uh, it, it wasn't a situation where they were trying to pull anything over on people. Like they, they were sincere in their belief that this has happened. Um, but that's, yeah, that, that's kind of, that's the story in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 
I think it's interesting because you, you do a great job on the show of covering the core story, but you don't stop there. Like you, you keep moving on and go into all kinds of really interesting aspects of perception, belief, uh, fact checking, psychology, memory. So do you want to talk about like, how did you decide to, or how did you go into those aspects? Cause obviously those don't show up in your average history channel show. Right. So you're going a little deeper. You're going a lot deeper, and it sounds really good too. And I'm jealous. All right, okay. go on. Uh, <laughs> so He's jealous. So I mean, that was kind of the that was kind of the point of this. I think was was how do you think about these kinds of stories? I mean, for me, was was how do you how do you think about these kinds of stories? Um, so, you know, I talked to some people. I talked to some skeptics um, about how do, how do you approach this? How do you explain this? Because on the face of it like a- absent any other information it's it's kind of a compelling story um and and especially when they when they get hypnotized and they're telling this this you know mutually reinforcing story and especially if you haven't read her dreams or reality piece so you know i i ended up talking to uh, sort of a, a ever widening circle of of skeptics and scientists, right? So I was talking, I, I wanted to to start with the hypnosis thing because everything's kind of, everything, like you can believe that they saw something in the sky that night and not believe that they were kidnapped by aliens. But if they were, if you believe they're kidnapped by aliens, you believe they saw something in the sky that night. So I wanted to work backwards with the thing that was most dependent on the others. Um, so it was, you know, how does, how does regression hypnosis work? Is that reliable? Can you actually bring back memories that way? Um, and then how does memory, how does memory itself, how do we remember things like this? So I, I ended up talking to, um, people like Elizabeth Loftus. I don't know if you know her name, but she's like a big expert in in, in memory. And she did a lot of stuff with regression hypnosis and, and the satanic panic. Actually, um, and it's just, you know, regression hypnosis is just not an accepted scientific thing anymore, you know, and it, it actually caused a lot of damage back in, I guess, particularly the 80s with the satanic panic where, where you know, you try and regress these people to rem- ask them to remember things that had happened to them that, that they were having a block on. And they're coming up with all kinds of crazy stuff that ended up with people in jail and, you know reputations destroyed and in all you know because of nothing i mean there was no satanic conspiracy but that's that was kind of the uh what brought that on so i, I think that was sort of the largest uh like use of that that kind of backfired but that's a big thing in ufos too is is using regression hypnosis to find these memories of things that that people say they can't remember it's like, oh well, you, you got abducted by aliens, and this is how you you pull it out. So, um, leading questions. Yeah, it's leading questions, and I, I think even in 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 like Doctor Simon, like he was, you know, he he was very well versed in what he was doing. But they, but they, you know, they already knew this story that they were going to tell. Like, I don't think they were trying to fool him or anything. But mm-hmm. in their mind. She'd had these intense dreams. She thought about it enough to write it down. She told people about him. He was in the room when she, when she talked about him. So when it's like, what happened during that period of time? And, 
you know, it's like, oh, well, under hypnosis where you're not recalling actual things that happen, you're recalling what do you associate with that, with what he's asking, what Betty and Barney associated with it were these dreams that she had. So that's what they told. That's what they told. Um, it, you know, and then I and actually listening to uh, some of your earlier uh, broadcasts, you know, I know you've talked about how memory works and how mm-hmm. when you're remembering something, you're not remembering the thing that actually happened. You're remembering the last time you remembered it. And all these little things can get introduced into into it along the way. Um, and, you know, once you start realizing that, at least for me, because this wasn't something that I actually knew very much about. And you start thinking about all these the times when you've had different memories than than other people who are at the same thing. And you realize that you're like, wow, you know, I'm totally positive that this is the way it happened. But now I realize that I can't be sure at all. Um, and I was talking um, to uh, my, my sister has a story about when she was young uh, in the morning up at our uh, my family's lake place, like opening the door and having a raccoon hanging on the screen, like face to face with her. And she was like freaking out, but nobody believed her. But they're like, come on, you know, there wasn't a raccoon there. And I, I swear, like I would, I would testify that I was in the kitchen at that time and had saw it happen and saw her freak out and saw the raccoon hanging, hanging there. But there's, there's no way or else this whole thing that she's carried on, you know, where nobody believed her and that, and, that just wouldn't have happened. So that's, you know, that's just such a clear memory to me that clearly is false. Um, and example, um, I wanted to ask about uh, Betty. Do you think that she was influenced by anything prior to the supposed experience? Because I've heard some sources say that she wasn't interested in UFOs and then other sources say that uh, she was interested or that she had a sister or a relative who was yeah. interested might've got her, um, thinking about the topic and, and have affected her her story in some way. So, um, yeah, I you know I don't have like a whole lot of like super inside information on that. I do know that her sister thought she had seen a UFO years before, and mm-hmm. Betty herself talks about how her family was interested in the stars, uh, like they would go stargazing, and I think they they might have had a telescope or something. So, you know, to say that she wasn't interested or wasn't aware of UFOs, I, I think is is incorrect. Whether she was sort of as obsessed with them as she got later in her life, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think she she tried to play up her ignorance about the subject a little, probably a little bit more than than was real. Yeah, that it, that seemed weird to me. Was so? Did you get the impression she was playing down her previous information? More so than like the other people, ret- the people retelling it or the, we're always hear it. She didn't know, like she didn't have any UFO books and she didn't know anything. And I'm, and I'm, I'm thinking having done a little reading, uh, looking at movies and stuff like Earth versus the Flying Saucers, the Roswell incident, uh, Kenneth Arnold, there were, there were UFO magazines. The 1950s were full of UFO stories and movies and they were on TV shows. So I, I, I find it really difficult to believe that she was somehow super ignorant of the existence of flying saucer lore even if she wasn't a, a deep diver into the content or whatever so yeah i mean that that's my impression and again her her sister like thought that she'd seen one and 
I, I believe I don't think she had another sister. She had a sister who lived very close uh, to her in, in Kingston, I think. So they saw each other. She would have known about that story. Um, so I, you know, I think she knew what UFOs were. Uh, yeah. and, and, and she saw a bright light in the sky and said, I think that's a UFO. You know, I think that's a flying saucer. Something's following us. You know, that's not, you know, if you don't know those exist, that's a strange thing to like, to pop into your head. So I think, I think she was sort of predisposed to, you know, to draw that conclusion, uh, yeah. like very early on in the encounter. Do you mind if I have another question, Karen? Or, oh, go for it. Yeah. Well, I was going to say the, um, one of the things about the Betty Barney Hill case is it's, it's presented, uh, I think, as a sort of the template for the modern abductee, abductee movement. And I think over the course of your, your episodes, you reveal that there's actually some pretty big discrepancies between what happened to the Hills and what later became the, the more well-known abductee movement in the 90s and late 80s. Is, uh, do, you, do you want to talk about some of the commonalities and some of the differences? Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Uh, partly because, you know, there there was uh, there's Junior. Um, <laughs> I've actually I've actually held that. It's it's a very strange artifact. Um, How big is it? Uh, it's you know it's roughly it's like a child's size head. I would say. Okay. okay. Yeah, it's got this weird like hole in the back because she knocked it off a a pedestal in Cincinnati while she was giving a talk or something. It's, it's very strange. And now you're taking off a pedestal too. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, so, so yeah. Um, part of the, part of the podcast talks about how the sort of abduction narrative progressed from, you know, Betty and Barney Hill, which is really the first one that was well known. There was a, there was one that came kind of before it that happened in Brazil, but you know, never became as popular and, and Betty and Barney certainly didn't know about it. And then how there was like this continual sort of escalation where you couldn't just say, oh, I was abducted. It had basically the same thing happen. It always had to be something a little bit more. Um, and that kind of peaked in the 1990s uh, where uh, three, three men in particular, uh, Bud Hopkins, who was a modern artist who who basically gave up modern art to do alien abduction investigation. Uh, David Jacobs, who's a history professor at Temple University. And uh, John Mack, who uh, was actually a psychology professor at Harvard and, uh, and a therapist. Uh, and they, it, it sort of started with Bud Hopkins, but they came up with this idea and they, they based it par- partially on um, a survey they did that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in North America uh, were being abducted and that most people didn't, didn't remember it, uh, that their, their memories were wiped clean. But it was like this huge program that these aliens were coming and they were abducting people, tons and tons of people, and bringing them uh, aboard spaceships and basically harvesting you know, harvesting sperm and, and, yeah, and, eggs fluids, right? and, and all this stuff. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and to what end, you know, they, depending on who you talk to, David Jacobs, who's still, a, who's still, is the only one of the three who's still alive. 
was 100% thought that they were creating alien-human hybrids to colonize the Earth. And his thought is that's actually happening right now, that, you know, we walk around uh, among alien-human hybrids and that it, it's, it's really, really strange stuff. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't that's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and or useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur injuries, <laughs> paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, well, I thought you did a really good job on the show of having yourself and experts explain why that's... Um, and I think you use more polite wording, but I'm going to say wackadoodle. So, yeah. yeah, so, yeah. I mean, it's just biologically un tenable i think yeah <laughs> yeah it's that there, there's a lot of problems with the theory <laughs> beyond the fact that you would think you'd probably find one piece of physical evidence if millions of people were being abducted by aliens or as much semen as they're stealing and yeah yes. yeah you think <laughs> and uh yeah so anyway but this was you know this is a big thing and this is what um you know the x-files which is you know the creme de la creme i think of the pop culture uh, manifestation of this stuff, um, you know, that's that's where they got the the through plot about you know abductions and 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 hybrids and stuff is from mm -hmm. this uh, Bud Hopkins, John Mack, David Jacobs, um, and they were they were essentially acting as therapists for people, um, and people would come and they would explain, you know, they would they would hypnotize them and mm -hmm. you know explain like your your issues. Uh, are, are real and they're based on the fact that since you were, you know, this idea of multiple abductions, since you were a kid, you've been abducted by aliens every once in a while. And, you know, at one point you were carrying an alien baby and, you know, it was taken from you and then you had to go up and cuddle it on board this craft where 50 other people were having the same thing. You know, it's just, it's very, it's very strange stuff. Um, and I interviewed for this uh, woman named Carol Rainey, 
who was Bud Hopkins' wife, ex-wife and was um, helped him with research for about 10 years. Uh, mm-hmm. But was actually, she wasn't scientifically trained, but she'd worked with epidemiologists uh, in her work as a, as a documentary filmmaker. So she talks a lot about, you know, seeing how they're going about this, you know, quote unquote research and about how unscientific it was. Um, and, and the problems that she had with the fact that they're drawing these incredible conclusions and, you know, sort of practicing a kind of medicine on people, uh, in addition to, you know, if you're just selling books or whatever, and people want to read it, I guess that's fine. But, you know, John Mack was, you know, he's a licensed therapist and he's, he's talking to people about, uh, you know, explaining their issues with, with alien abductions, which got him investigated at Harvard. <laughs> um, so yeah. With uh, the, the story that Betty and Barney Hill told, and now they've both passed, haven't they? I think uh, Barney yeah. quite some time ago, and uh, I'm not sure when, when Betty died. She died, she died about 20 years ago. Yeah, uh, Bar- Barney died in 1969. He had a cerebral hemorrhage, I think. Um, yeah. But Betty, Betty lived for quite a while afterwards. And did their stories change over the years? Because uh, it, it seems like Barney's story was, as you were saying, a little bit more vague and her story was more specific and she'd had these dreams. Did they the stories change over time? Um. So a lot of the change happened in between when they had the experience in 1961 and then um, when they were hypnotized in 64 and, and, and like the couple years right after. So when they first, when Barney first talked about seeing uh, beings looking back at him from this craft that was hovering over the field, he describes one of them as looking like an Irishman. Um, he describes another one as looking like a Nazi. Uh, and, you know, I, and I talk about it on the, on the podcast is that these are two, like he, he was in the army, um, and he worked as at a postal annex. I think he was a mail sorter, um, in, in Boston during the, you know, late fifties, early sixties. And, you know, my sense is that he saw Irishmen as threatening, Right. And he certainly saw Nazis as threatening so that, you know, when he's like telling this this story about about seeing um, a craft, like the way he relates these creatures are things that cause him anxiety. Right. Rather than maybe what he actually I mean, he didn't actually see aliens looking back at him, but that's that's kind of what he retained. Um, but then when they when they undergo hypnosis, suddenly it's, it's a it's a different story. Um they become like humans, but not quite human. Um, he talks about uh, in one of his hypnosis sessions that they're looking down at him. He's got like a, this guy's got like a film over his mouth and it makes a funny noise. Uh, none of the aliens talk to him. Um, Betty talks, gives a little bit more description and she kind of, they seem to have like slightly different races. Like there's like the workers are like kind of smaller, the uh, the guys who are in charge, who's like the leader and the, like the physician, are are sort of bigger, and she describes what 
sort of a midpoint between like a person and what we would now think of as a gray alien, like your sort of typical alien with like the big eyes and like the slit mouth and not much of a nose. So in, uh, you know, I think in a lot of ways, although it does point back and I'll talk about it in a second to, to things that were in popular culture, I think this is the first time that that was actually being used as a description of like, I saw an alien and this is what it looked like, like for real. Um, and, you know, over the years, she kind of changed a little bit. She talked about how uh, the aliens uh, looked more like this tribe, like this Southern Pacific tribe that lives near Antarctica that she saw a film, uh, a film about one time. And she said they looked like them, like they looked more human than what people think. But she did, and we, you know, for people watching it on TV um, or on YouTube, uh, that that statue, that was something that she worked on with um, this woman, Marjorie Fish, uh, who had another prominent role to play in the story. Uh, but they worked together to create something that looked as close as possible to what Betty remembered. So that's mm-hmm. sort of, you know, what you point to, and it looks like it looks, you know. It, it looks like a cross between a human, a bald person, and what you think of as an alien now, I would say. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that a, a little bit. We've got, I know a lot of the skeptical literature suggests that that Barney's hypnotic regression, the images he saw were, were, were affected by this TV show, The Outer Limits, specifically the episode The Bolero Shield. Yep. And that uh, what I've got on the screen there is the alien from the Bolero Shield, but there's also another alien that uh, might have possibly been an influence. Let me see if I get that one up and hide this guy and close that, and then show this guy. This guy is from the Twilight Zone. This is from the episode Hocus Pocus and Frisbee when the aliens are revealed. Great episode. Now that one aired in 1962. And now we know that the original abduction or whatever happened happened in '61. The the Hocus Pocus of Frisbee '62, and then the Bolero Shield was '64, um, if I understand correctly. But I guess when it, when it aired, it aired right before the hypnotic regression. Right. Right. So there's some discussion around whether either one of these. We don't know if Barney saw either, as far as I know, but they were out there publicly available, and the uh, potentially could have been watched. So. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I know you kind of cover it in the show, and I don't want to spoil that because I, I like how you reveal a lot of this stuff. So, yeah, no, I, you know, neither one of them looks a ton. <laughs> I mean, this well, is we're talking like the the early '60s, so the you know the special effects is it's a guy in a mask, right? Yeah. Um, but if you were to if you were to describe those those guys in masks, you'd be like, oh, they got really big eyes, and they don't have much of a nose, and you can't really see a mouth. And that's that's essentially the description of what they were giving of the alien. So, um, I mean, I, it, it makes sense to me. I mean, I think there's, you know, you can even go back to um, what this island Earth, which I think, oh yeah, you know, it, it's not exactly the same thing, but it's another sort of the, strange the, 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 headed Luna alien. I think that's right. The big brain alien, yeah. You know, yeah, so I, you know, there's this idea, you know, this like large-headed, weird-eyed, 
uh, thing. So I, you know, I, I don't know for sure. I, they, they said that they never saw the Bolero shield. I, as far as I know, uh, they never commented about that twilight zone episode. Uh, but again, I mean, you don't have to watch the, the whole episode to see an image of it flash across the screen on an ad for it or pops up in, on the, you know, the TV listings or whatever. So it, it, it makes sense, but there's no there's no proof either way. Yeah. So speaking of proof, was there any other physical evidence for their experience? So the physical evidence is it's not the kind of thing I would like to be convicted of if I committed a crime. I mean it's all kind <laughs> of it's all kind of stuff that has alternate explanations. So um you know, Barney Part of this part of the story when they get abducted is that Barney is sort of semi levitated, but his shoe, but his feet are dragging along the ground, and his shoes ended up being all scuffed up. Um, Betty's dress was torn, and there's a there's a part of the story about how the aliens didn't really know how to use a zipper, uh, so they tore her dress. Uh, there one one thing that's genuinely kind of weird is that both their watches stopped that night, um, which sort of played a part maybe in, in, in how they got confused about timing of things. There was a, uh, a weird uh, powdery kind of substance that formed on Betty's dress. Uh, but, you know, she kind of just stored it. And, uh, you know, I think most people think it was mold. Uh, I, she, they actually, it's, you know, they've got the, the dress was literally in a cardboard box in at the university of new hampshire like i saw the dress like i could have like tried it on uh so it's not like captain like (laughs) it's not like if it was like you know really evidence of alien visitation you think you would probably do something more than put it in a box what Uh, do they they make you wear gloves or anything to protect it uh well i didn't actually i just looked at it i didn't pick it up but i think i could have picked it up uh but people have come in and just cut pieces out of it and then sent them off to labs yeah it's really weird um so I thought you meant for souvenirs or something. Uh well that's probably true too. Merchandise. I, I took a look at some of the some of the uh, uh the lab results that came back, and I'm not a chemist, but but nobody seemed very alarmed by what they found. Um the other weird thing is that the the trunk of their car had these like little shiny spots that when they put a um a compass over it, uh apparently the compass would spin. Uh, like there's like a some kind of electric field, uh, but that's all just based on their telling that story. When even mm-hmm. when investigators came to check to to talk to them, they never independently tried to do that. And then the you know I think the they sold the car, you know they didn't keep. And again, it's like you've got this. If this really happened, you've got this incredible piece of evidence of aliens visiting the Earth, and you just you know sold it as a used car. Um, so it's a little strange, uh, you know, and I don't, maybe they needed the money or whatever. Yeah, they didn't have eBay and they need that new car. You got to yeah. get the down payment. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. But it's, you know, so, so the, you know, was there, was there physical evidence? There's stuff they could kind of point to, but nothing that really holds up to like something, you know, it's not proof of anything. It's no, just no things. Yeah. Or something. You could kind of throw them all together and say, well, they're consistent with this story. But they're, but that doesn't mean they prove anything. Like you can tear a dress doing whatever. Right. So someone did ask earlier uh, with the, the questions that are coming through from uh, our viewers. 
someone said that uh, Barney had actually retracted his story. Is there any truth to that or any? Uh, that's really interesting. I've never heard that. I, okay. I've i never run into anything. Nobody I talk to about so they, it. They stay stuck to their stories you know, in one form or another their entire lives. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, Barney, you know, he only lived for about four years after their hypnosis, four or five years. Yeah. Um, but as far as I know, he never, uh, he never went back on it. Betty just went 150% in on the whole bit and claimed to see UFOs all the time. And she actually had a notebook that she kept both things that she claimed to see and stories that she got from other people, um, this sort of diary. But she would talk about, and I live in this area, and I've never seen any of this stuff, but like squadrons of UFOs coming in off the ocean and, you know, a UFO picking up a, a semi on on the highway and turning it around while cars like screech to a halt, freaking out, you know, it's just, you know, it, it didn't happen, you know, clearly, but she, uh, she really went sort of all in on it. And, and, in um, uh, this woman, Kathleen Martin, who's Betty's niece is sort of the, sort of the keeper of the flame of the story. And she goes around talking yeah. to UFO co- conferences R- really nice. I, I had a great conversation with her and she, she tells a lot of the story on the podcast, uh, but in her book about it, she kind of talks about how after Barney died, Betty kind of was influenced by people in the UFO community who really saw her as the star. And <laughs> and she kind of, you know, uh, put aside what Kathleen regarded as her skepticism and just started sort of jumping in on all these, all these sort of outlandish tales that, mm-hmm. you know, you know, it's after the initial thing. So do, do, does it make her initial testimony less believable? Like, I, I guess I wouldn't make that jump, but there's nothing, to, but I don't, you know, I don't think there's anything to, to show that the first thing happened anyway. Well, you know, when we introduce you, you've got the Strange Arrivals podcast, but you also have a Crime Writers podcast. Yeah. So so how long has that been, been going on? Uh, we've been doing that since twenty. Like December 2014, it started off uh, when Serial came out, and okay. we started off as crime writers on Serial, and then um, we moved on uh, when Serial was over, and we we kept going. We just changed it to Crime Writers on. So now we just review mostly true crime stuff, also some you know other Did, fictional so, crime stuff. And you write crime as well, right? Yeah, I've written three sort of noir novels. The reason I ask is I was wondering how. Does the true crime genre, did it affect your investigation and the way you approach this story as opposed to coming in from a purely paranormal sort of side of it? Um, you know, I think the, I think there's some overlap, uh, particularly in the memory stuff. Um, it's, it's really pretty – like the more you learn about how people remember things, uh, the more terrifying it is to think that people are in jail because of eyewitness testimony <sighs> – Tell and, me about it. Yeah. And people put so much weight into that. Um, so that was really, I, I think that was the thing. I don't, I, I don't feel like it, it, it. it's so different. It's so different. And so much of the stuff that's in true crime now is about the ways in which the system fails um, or, uh, you know, the prosecutorial misconduct or, 
or people who are are wrongly accused of things and again are 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 sometimes convicted through good faith but wrong eyewitness testimony things like that this seemed like such a different a different thing which is you know you have this like i mean i think literally incredible tale like you can't believe it and how do you why why would people why would people believe it you know why why do you believe something that's so outside of normal experience and for which there's no real evidence you basically have like a pretty interesting story and then you have this sort of corroboration in this hypnosis which is fairly easily explained but then why do people still so firmly believe in this to the point where you know on on iTunes and my reviews most of the negative reviews i get are for like you know being a debunker or not not believing it or like giving the ufo community a hard time and you know I, that wasn't the that wasn't the point i think it was it was more it's like how do you think how do you think about these things cuz i think yeah you know most most ufo people i talk to like they they want to see the evidence too, and sometimes it's really just a matter of what what do you consider to be evidence? What what's good mm-hmm. enough evidence? And sometimes people in the community, I think, think that they have things that are evidence, but they don't hold up to what's considered scientific scrutiny, right? Um, I think there's sort of a lot of. And, and I'm sure you guys have run into this all the time with your stuff. It's like sort of science, science adjacent uh, yeah, studies yeah. are going on. So it kind of sounds like science. It kind of, you know, you, you can write it up so that it seems like it might be science, but it doesn't have the same uh, rigor, I guess. And like often you're starting with a conclusion and then, and then getting your facts to kind of right, wedge right. it in to fix that, that conclusion. <laughs> So, you know, I, my feeling is like, it would be awesome if somebody ever came up and there was evidence for, for one of these things. I mean, I think it'd be mm-hmm. incredible, but that doesn't, you know, jumping, jumping the gun with stuff that we've already seen um, just seems like a mistake. Well, I, I think you do a really fair job of telling the Hills side of things, talking about how the narrative changes and it never feels like you're just bashing on people saying, this isn't true. Why do you people believe this? You're talking about the way narrative changes over time, the way memory works. You're covering a lot of the same ground we cover on this show. Mm-hmm. And we do get a little bit of grief from people mm-hmm. occasionally, but it's usually people who are like hardcore believers. They come in and they listen to one show, decide we don't believe in monsters. So therefore, we have nothing useful to say. We give us a one-star review. And, and off go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So that's not really the show. We couldn't right. do that for 10 years. What a, what a boring waste of time that would be. Um, that's not real. That's not real. That's not real. That would not be a very good show. So Yeah, and I think, you know, it's not that interesting to look at bad faith, bad faith stories, right? I mean, what's, what's interesting is to look at people who really believe uh, in what happened to them and try and figure out what it was, you know? I mean, somebody just making stuff up. I mean, you know, who cares? You're a liar. Uh, but if, but people who really, you know, believe what they're talking about, um, it's like, how, how do you go about making sense of their story? Um, if you, if you don't think that it's, if you don't think it's aliens, like, how do you, how, how do you explain it? Like, how, how do you, how do you go about assessing those things? Um, and that's, what's interesting. I mean, we haven't even, okay, sorry, go ahead. 
I was just going to ask before we started the show, we were just chit chatting a little bit about uh, the the star map. Yeah. And do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, Betty's Betty's map? Sure. <laughs> so in the background. Yes. I'll try to get it. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that that uh, that happened under hypnosis is that she says that as as I mentioned earlier, she asked uh, this alien who she's communicating with, where are they from? And, and he brings out this star map. And uh, Dr. Simon, the hypnot- the uh, psychiatrist, was intrigued by this and said, you know, if, if when you're not under hypnosis, uh, you feel like you remember this well enough to, to draw it, you know, draw it. It'd be interesting to see. So she drew this map and it's, you know, I, I think in the, in the podcast, I say it's like sort of if, if you ask somebody to draw a map from your house to the, to the nearest highway and you kind of like draw in the different turns and stuff you make, like you get all the turns right, but you're probably not going to have all the distances exactly right. Uh, it looks like one of those things. Um, but this woman named Marjorie Fish, who was a school teacher in Ohio, uh, she saw it and she thought, well, maybe I can figure out what vantage point in the galaxy this map is drawn from. So she... And this is, you know, this is in the like mid '60s, uh, so she was, didn't have like a home computer to do this. So she was literally, um, she was hanging beads from thread from the ceiling of her living room, and she would hang like hundreds and hundreds of beads, and they all had to be precisely placed based on the astronomical data we knew at the time. So she was, you know, it's this incredibly painstaking work to get the distances between the stars right and their their relationships to each other. And I think she did 20 or 22 different models. And then she yeah, take there's, there's Betty's original. OK, uh, yeah. So yeah, you yeah. see, it's just and it's on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. I, yeah. I've, I've held a facsimile of it and it's just <laughs> it's 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 a little underwhelming. But we get the other one up. Yeah. But what Marjorie Fish did is. It's, it's unbelievable. Like I've, I've seen pictures of, of, of the models and they're quite something. And then she would just take pictures from different angles and try and compare them to the star map and try and find something that matched up with it. And uh, she eventually found it and, and what she thought matched up and what was really kind of weird and sort of uh, they thought sort of lent credence to uh, Betty's story was that it, it required finding these two new stars that were in this new uh, index of all the stars. I can't remember what it's called now, but they were, they were discovered in between the time when they had their encounter. And I think 1969 is when, is when Marjorie finally got the model. So they're saying there's no way the, there's no way any human knew that these stars existed. So the only way that that could have been correct is if, the map that she saw included these stars. And so the aliens, it must've been an alien map. It just shows that no human could have made it. Um, what, what happened later, uh, which kind of sort of dispels sort of the, the, the magic of that story is that once we like launched Hubble and, you know, had more accurate readings on stars, it turned out her star maps just weren't, weren't accurate. Like the data she was using wasn't, wasn't accurate. And before she died, she actually said, you know, Unfortunately, what with what we know now, my conclusion was that it was Zeta Reticuli uh, doesn't hold up anymore. So she she kind of she went 
she went back on that at the end. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a really interesting. And then she later, I mean, she became friends with the Hills and she, she did the, uh, that bust of the alien. I mean, those are her two, the two things she created sort of these two artifacts that came out of this, this whole encounter. Yeah. It's interesting. The, uh, the, the star map doesn't really make a lot of sense. Drawing on a two-dimensional piece of paper, trying to draw a three-dimensional thing with no units of measure and all that sort of challenge is, is tough enough. But the what I'm interested in, though, is on in her original story of the alien, she talked about a Jim Durante-style nose. Yeah. And by the time we get to this, this uh, junior sculptor, sculpture there's no there's no big nose yeah like um and it seems like there's sort of a convergence of trying to push the betty and barney hill aliens into the sort of gray archetype and that's not that's a that's a shoehorn it seems like to me <laughs> yeah i mean she says that the jimmy durani thing was a was her dream and that that when she got hypnotized was when she realized what they actually looked like um but i i people have certainly made the case that what actually happened is that she heard from Barney what what Barney described and kind of adjusted her description to fit his description, um, and that's what ended up becoming. It's not just Junior. She she had this uh, artist in New Hampshire whose name I think was David Baker, and they had David Baker uh, paint uh, like these weird little scenes of of aliens. Um, that were they're really interesting uh but but they're also they're they're similar in that they they look kind of like grays but you know they describe them wearing clothes and having hats on and stuff so it's like a, a like prototype gray wearing a like a like a baseball cap kind of and like a jacket um, so if if she did combine her story with Barney's i guess technically junior is a hybrid yes uh, a story hybrid. That. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 She said the one thing, the one thing that's different about this and what she saw, the, the junior thing is that they, they colored the eyeball, the uh, whites of the eyes yellow to make them stand out. But in fact, they were white. Oh, so it's not that he has jaundice. Yeah. No. Although that's, okay. that's been speculated. The other thing is that there's, that's kind of weird yellowish. And I was told by the, uh, the research library, I mean, the, um, special collections librarian at UNH that part of that is nicotine because Betty was a chain smoker. Oh, and, Betty smoked. No, yeah. Not yeah. Junior. Yeah. Yeah, okay, no, yeah. not junior, okay. junior, okay. junior, as far as I know, you can't smoke on spacecraft as you probably know. <laughs> Buckle yeah, your seatbelts, train in the upright position. Um, yeah, exactly. It's, it's very dangerous. <laughs> I think a lot of the old footage of her, uh, you, you see her, she's always got a cigarette in her mouth. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I guess we're running low on time. Yeah. I did want to mention the UFO incident. You didn't talk a lot about that in the the podcast. Did you get a chance to watch it, the the uh, TV movie? I watched a little bit of it. I didn't watch a ton of it. Um, you know, in some ways it didn't seem as sort of germane to what I was talking about. Like, I, you know, if I talked a little bit more about Travis Walton, his experience, like he was, he was the guy, the fire in the sky oh, yeah. abductee. Yeah. And that actually happened like a week after uh, the whatever it was called, the UFO um, incident, the UFO incident came out. Um, 
and I, I'd thought about maybe doing something about him because they seem very directly correlated. And I think Travis and Betty Hill became friends on the UFO circuit. Uh, but because I didn't, I've seen, I've seen a few, uh, you know, I've seen a few uh, clips. The best clip, I think, oh, well, it's not the best clip, but the most interesting clip is from Cosmos. And we couldn't get uh, rights to put it on the podcast. But Cosmos, um, Carl Sagan in one of, in the one episode where he's talking about life in space, like basically starts it off uh, ridiculing the star map and uh, sort of they, they do this sort of ridiculous recreation of Betty and Barney Hill's UFO encounter. That's, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you're, if you, if you're into the story would just be so infuriating because they look like idiots and it felt mean, didn't it? Yeah. 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 And Stan Friedman, um, who's a big UFO researcher and was a big Mm -hmm. proponent of this, who I actually talked to, he passed away in between when I, when I spoke with him and, uh, and when the podcast came out, I mean, he he wrote this crazy letter to uh, to the the producer of Cosmos, just ripping into him about how disrespectful it was and and all this stuff. Which you know, in some ways, you know, fair play. I, it did it did seem sort of unnecessarily humiliating. Like if you want to take a scientific uh, issue with it. And we didn't even get into the whole – there was a big back and forth in Astronomy Magazine about how seriously yeah. you could take the star map. And uh, it, according to Astronomy Magazine, nearly like submarine their their whole magazine before it even really got off the ground. No, it's, it's it a good story. Yeah. I think I, – I can't reiterate this enough to our listeners. you you got to check this show out. It's really great. Where can they find it? Uh, you should be able to find it uh, like on any on it wherever you listen to your podcast. Uh, okay. So, strange arrivals. <laughs> yep, exactly. Strange arrivals. So, we have a final question. Yeah. Do it, Karen. Yeah. Um, so we we have a final question. We like to ask all of our guests, and that is Toby. What's your favorite monster? So it's uh, it's an easy answer. It's Bigfoot. A hundred percent back in the uh, classic. <laughs> back eleven, twelve, thirteen. I mm-hmm. I think my favorite movie was The Mysterious Monsters. I don't know if is big fan. Yeah, big fan. yeah. So I was uh, the uh, what's the uh, the the uh, film where he's kind of loping along. The, the Patterson, Patterson, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, no, I was one hundred percent. Going to be your next podcast then. Yeah, <laughs> Bigfoot. Somebody's done a good, pretty good Bigfoot good podcast about the Bigfoot nests and all that stuff. Is pretty is pretty interesting. Um, that, that sounds you're you're talking about. Um, uh, Grover Krantz's uh, niece, cousin, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was a while ago. Or, yeah, I guess it wasn't that long ago. But I've listened it's to a, a good lot show. Of we had her on. Yeah, yeah, oh, you yeah, did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was cool. So, well, thank you very much for taking time to talk to us again. I can't. Yeah, it's a uh, great story and a great podcast. Yeah. So, thank you very much for for appearing, and um, thanks to everyone who's watching this or listening to this. And please do subscribe to our YouTube channel and. Yes, please, please like subscribe. This episode and tell your friends. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's about it. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we we everyone. really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Okay. Yeah. Thank yeah, you very much. Great topic. Monster Talk. You've been listening to a podcast version of Monster Talk Live, a special feature that we recorded during 2020. Links to the video version of these episodes are in the show notes. 
Please like and subscribe to our YouTube channel, and we'll work to continue to provide good content there, including more streaming events in the future. Monster Talk is a listener-supported program, and your subscription at patreon.com forward slash monster talk sustains us during these difficult times. Thank you for your support and for your positive reviews. I'm Blake Smith, and along with my co-host Karen Stolzno, we ask you to join us in being the voice of reason and science in a world that's perilous with nonsense, superstition, and dangerous misinformation. Shine your lights, everyone. Even a flickering candle can be seen for miles in the darkness. And together, we are stronger. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>